We have been uh, studying the book of Exodus for a number of months now, and if you have picked it up over the last couple of months, there are four themes that run through the book of Exodus. And today we are coming down to the final theme uh, that will cover 15 chapters over three weeks. Uh, not three weeks, three is a preaching session because next week is apologetic. And uh, final stretch, final theme, four themes. The first theme that we have covered is uh, redemption. The first theme is redemption, covered from chapter 1 to 18. Uh, we know the story about how God raised Moses up to lead the people out of Egypt after they've been bondage there for 400 years. We went through the, the Red Sea and provided them manna and water and uh, redemption, the theme of redemption. Almost half of the book of Exodus, chapter 1 to 18, cover the first theme on redemption. And the second theme is covenant. You can see that in chapter 19, although it is not officially ratified until chapter 24. Covenant. God make a covenant with His people. And then the third theme that runs through the book of Exodus is, the, is law. As we have covered over the last couple of sessions on the law, we see that in chapter 20 to 23, uh, it is called the book of the covenant in Exodus the Ten Commandments, and many other laws that God gave to the people of Israel. So one thing good to remember, the laws can be divided into three areas. One is called a ceremonial law, and then the civil law, as well as the moral law. Of course, the moral law still applies to us. Uh, the civil and the ceremonial uh, laws are strictly ap applicable for the Jewish people at that time. So, redemption... Covenant, law, and the final theme that we are going to focus on is worship. As uh, Pastor Caroline has briefly highlighted about worship, it is a big deal because so many chapters in the book deal with it. And God wants to be in relationship with us and desires to be worshipped. So the remaining 15 chapters is all about worship. But... The incredible thing is today, from 25 to 31, uh, seven chapters, or six chapters uh, covers on the instruction on building the tabernacle. And you realize that this, this same information will be repeated again in 35 to 40. So the first part of it from 25 to 31 is instruction, and from 25 to 30 is actually the, the actual construction. And sandwiched between is the rebellion which we'll talk about it the next session where Aaron built a golden calf with the people. So congratulations to you if you actually take time to read through these seven chapters. Uh, Jim this morning at a prayer meeting mentioned that it took him 40 minutes to read through seven chapters. What do you do after you get married? You move in together, you live together. And God and the people has made a covenant in chapter 24, and now God is going to move in. God is going to dwell with His people. There was a marriage ceremony in, in Exodus 24 between God and Israelites, and they make a covenant, and now God is going to live and dwell with His people. And God gave specific instructions on building the tabernacle. 
which uh, is a tent of meeting. Uh, please take note that the, the, the tabernacle is, is not very big. It's the size of probably an Olympic-sized swimming pool. And it is portable. It's mobile. And so, so God gave instruction down to the details on building this tabernacle uh, so that they can move. As the Israelites move, they have to pack up the tabernacle and go to the next place and set it up again. Not until when they enter the promised land and some years later, 400 years later, King Solomon built the temple. And that will be a resemble of what the tabernacle is in a more permanent place in the temple. And of course, when we fast forward it later on in the, in the New Testament, we will become the temple of God where God dwells in us. So the reason for the building of the tabernacle here in, in chapter 25, verse 8, it tells us specifically, it says this, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. And then furthermore, they are, they are to follow the instruction God gives them down to a T. In, and then further down, he said, Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So the primary concern of this section, then the last 15 chapters, is proper worship, especially as it relates to the tabernacle and the priesthood. Tabernacle and priest, very specific detailed instruction to Moses to construct a temp, the, the tabernacle, and as well as detailed guidelines on the priestly garments and to the process of anointing, ordaining, and consecrating them. So I want to actually show you two clips, uh, but before I show you the two clips, I want to give you a very brief introduction first. The two is a short clip. Uh, please note that these two clips are taken from YouTube. All right? So it's not originally produced by us. It's taken from YouTube. Two clips on the tabernacle so that I to give you some visual things so that I can explain to you clearer uh, when I come to, to this after the, the clips. Uh, one is uh, about three and a half minutes and the other one is about just close to two minutes. But before that, let me just say something to you about the tabernacle. The whole thing that God asked them to the whole thing is known as the sanctuary. So the sanctuary is divided into three areas. The first area as you enter the sanctuary is the courtyard. And then the next thing is the tabernacle at the end of it. And as they enter the tabernacle, it's divided into two areas. One is the holy place and then the holy of holies. So three Areas in the sanctuary, courtyard, holy place, holy of holies. And I just want you to take note as you watch the clip, is, is the, I want you to take note of these six pieces of furniture that are in the sanctuary. There are two pieces of furniture in the courtyard, three pieces of furniture in the holy place, and then one piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies. So two, three, one. Six pieces of furniture. The two pieces of furniture in the courtyard is the altar of sacrifice. As you enter the sanctuary, enter the gate, is the altar of sacrifice. And then further down is the bronze basin, which is what they call laver. 
where the priests and Levites will wash themselves before they are allowed to enter the holy place to perform their duties. So altar of sacrifice and then a basin or bronze basin or called laver. And then, so there are two pieces of furniture at the courtyard. And then when they enter into the holy place, there are three pieces of furniture there. The first one on the left is menorah or the golden lamb stand. And then on the right is the table of show bread, which has 12 pieces of bread on the table, representing 12 tribes of Israel. And then further down, just outside of the Holy of Holies, which is separated by the curtain, is the altar of incense. So the menorah, which is the golden lampstand, and the table of show bread, and then the altar of incense. Three pieces of furniture. And then as the priest, the high priest, only the high priest is allowed to enter the Holy of Holies once a year. And as they enter in into the curtain, there's only one piece of furniture there, and that is the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, some people divide it into two parts where, where there's a mercy seat or they call atonement cover, and as well as the Ark. Because once you open the lid, the atonement cover, there are three pieces of uh, things in the articles in that uh, Ark of the Covenant. It is Ten Commandments, the Aaron staff, as well as the bowl of manna. Alright? So, two pieces of furniture at the outer court, three in the holy place, and then one in the holy of holies. Look out for that. Uh, the first clip does tell you uh, the, the, the name of the, the, the article of furniture. But the second clip is actually similar, but it's just in 3D dimension. It's, it's, it's grander, and I want you to have a look on that. So I'll ask Kitet to uh, play the clip uh, now. Oh, well, I hope it helps to give you some visual image of the uh, tabernacle uh, and three areas, six pieces of furniture. This is what I want to concentrate on. Uh, the, the topic of tabernacle is huge. It's huge. I, I poured through many literatures about uh, tabernacle. It's unbelievable how amazing scholars have put these kind of things together to study about tabernacle. Uh, from the tabernacle is actually, some, one, one person says, a recreation event. And what they do is try to look at the, the creation of tabernacle and the creation of the world and to see that they actually match in a sense. There are seven saying in uh, Genesis creation about, and God said, let there be light. Seven times. And seven times also in the creation of tabernacle, it was the phrase, the Lord said to Moses. The Lord said to Moses. Repeat seven times uh, from uh, uh, those remaining chapters that we, we talk about. And the last time, the last saying, the seventh saying uh, in a creation account, God said, uh, rest, Sabbath day. And, he, and the last time in uh, the creation of the tabernacle was also introducing the instructions for the tabernacle. And moreover, when the work is finished, uh, Moses blesses the people and he inspects the work like God does when God declares the creation as good in chapter 39, verse 43. So, so there are studies, uh, incredible study. That, uh, 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 and then also the first microscopic uh, picture of heaven on earth we have is the Garden of Eden, which uh, I, I believe Pastor Caroline has uh, 
preach a sermon on that as she told me sometimes ago. And so I poured through many literature, but I decided to uh, end today's sermon this way about worship, as Pastor Caroline already uh, introduced. For the modern Christians, uh, that word is often associated, as she said, weekend services where people gather together, sing a few songs, and contribute to the offerings and listen to the sermon. Uh, but true biblical worship is so much more than that because worship involves our entire relationship with God, our words, our attitudes, and our actions. The best New Testament description of worship is in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, a verse that is uh, very famous to, to many of us, is to present our body, is to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Remember the word living sacrifice. Oftentimes we associate sacrifice as in the Old Testament is a dead sacrifice, animal, something like that, a pigeon. But here is a living sacrifice to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And he says, this is our true and proper worship. So worship is offering our true living sacrifice, meaning to say if there is an altar, we sit on the altar, but it's not a dead sacrifice, but it's a life, a life. We offer ourselves to the Lord. So worship is a lifestyle that God wants us to live each and every day, a recognition of who God is and His place in our lives. And so how do we live out a life of worship? that is holy and pleasing to you. How do we do that in practical terms? One way is to look at God's instructions for worship given to the Israelites after the Exodus. And as I have already read to you in Exodus 25, verse 8 and 9, where God specifically tells Moses about worship, He instructed Moses to have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them make this tabernacle and all its furnishing exactly like the pattern I will show you. So the construction and the manner of worship of the tabernacle are a pattern for worship. This is God wants. It is a pattern for worship both on earth and in heaven. And it holds spiritual significance for us as believers. While the tabernacle, of course, is no longer with us physically, but there are many parallels of this tabernacle uh, for us as New Testament believers to draw from. So this is what I'm going to do for the next half an hour or maybe a little bit more. Uh, if you're a bit tired, you just pause and pick it up again later. This is what I plan to do. I plan to look at the six pieces of furniture that I ask you to focus on, and I want to draw something from there in the New Testament as well on what true worship is all about. So six pieces, but actually I include one more. Okay, one more is not literally a furniture, but it's just a courtyard because I just want to mention this to tie in with what true worship is all about. How do we offer our body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is our proper and true spiritual worship. How do we do that? And I hope to draw from these this, uh, um, pieces of furniture to point you in some direction, some practical thing that we can do. So the first, the first thing I want you to look at is the courtyard. The courtyard. Now in the time of Moses, 
Israelites who wanted to meet with God were required to come to the sanctuary. And there was only one entrance to the courtyard located on the eastern side of it. The gate was always open and never barred, and all who entered did so with the understanding that they were coming to worship God. And so if I may want to draw one point about worship, is true worship is understanding who we worship. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus also said in John chapter 10, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. True worship is understanding who we worship. Not only could people worship God in the tabernacle, this worship was divinely directed. Remember, it was divinely directed. It was not Moses' idea. It was not Aaron's idea. It was God's idea. God told Moses to build a tabernacle and God told him exactly how it was to be made. God was the architect. Moses was not to be original and creative. He was not to be a great innovator, but to follow a pattern. That's all. He was to follow the architectural blueprint God gave him. It is God's idea. It is not Moses' idea. And so Moses and Aaron, they don't have the liberty to do what they want. They were not to worship God the way they thought He should be worshipped or the way He wanted to worship Him. They were to worship Him the way God told Him to worship Him. And this is still true today. We are not supposed to worship God any way we want to worship Him. We are supposed to worship Him the way that He tells us to worship Him. God cares about how He is worshipped. If you were to look at Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, you don't have to turn to it, uh, Leviticus 10, 1 and 2, Aaron's two older sons were struck by God. And they died. Chapter 10, verse 1 and 2 says, Aaron's son Nadab and Abihu took their senses, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire, or some version called strange fire. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to His command. So fire came out of, from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Nadab and Abihu, they were uh, Aaron's eldest son and Moses' nephew. They were part of the group of 70 that went up on the mountain and saw God. So they were elders, they were leaders. They were leaders themselves, they had been ordained. They were just consecrated as priests. They were Israel's first priests, and they died the first day on the job. They were killed in the church while they were worshipping God, they did not do it in the right way. They offered a strange fire. Or here the version says, unauthorized fire. Uh, there's a whole lot of study on what does it actually mean. What does it mean? Strange fire or unauthorized fire. Not sure the exact detail, but the exact nature of the profane fire isn't known. But since it was the fire that was unauthorized, 
maybe it could be that Nadab and Abihu were, were burning the incense with fire of their own making, uh, rather than taking fire from the altar, as specified clearly in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 12. So they did not follow down to the key of the instructions. And so for New Testament covenant, for us, the clearest instruction on how to worship God is in the context of the Samaritan woman, remember? When Jesus says uh, that you should worship in spirit and in truth. That's the clearest instruction on how to worship is when Jesus said that God must worship in spirit and in truth. You have to have both. It is not enough to have truth. You have to have spirit. You have to worship God with your whole heart. It is not enough uh, to be sincere and passionate about worship. You can be passionate about worship, about worshipping a golden calf. Many are on fire for a false god, and worship must be in spirit and in truth. So true worship is understanding who we worship. And so to worship God in spirit, among other things, is, is originate from within, from the heart that you've been redeemed, you've been saved. It must be sincere. It must be motivated by our love for God and gratitude for all that He has done for us. And out of the gratefulness and thankfulness for all that He has done, we worship Him and surrender our lives to serve Him. Jesus criticized the worship of the religious leaders in Matthew 15. He said, They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from them. And so worship must be in spirit. But at the same time, God also said that you must worship God not just in spirit, from the heart, true, passionate, honest, love for God, outflow from our gratitude, but it's also based on truth. This is easier for us to understand, for it is obviously means that our worship must conform to the revelation of God in Scripture. It must be informed by who God is and what He is like. Our worship must be rooted in and teetered to the realities of biblical revelation. Worship is not just meant to, to be formed by what feels good, but by the light of what's true. So genuine Christ-exalting worship must never be mindless or based in ignorance. It must be doctrinally grounded and focused on the truth of all we know of our great triune God. To worship inconsistently with what is revealed to us in Scripture ultimately degenerates into idolatry. True worship must engage the heart, the affections, the totality of our being. But any affection or feelings or emotions stirred by error or false doctrine is worthless. John Piper has a, a very good quote on uh, worshipping God in spirit and in truth. This is what he said. He said, Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy and a church full of artificial admirers. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates shallow people who refuse the disciples of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God rooted in truth 
are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. So the courtyard, to me, represented God is the Jesus is the only way, and the true worship is understanding who we worship. The second thing that I want to move on is when you enter the sanctuary, the curtain, enter through the gate, the first piece of furniture is the altar of sacrifice. The altar of sacrifice. The word altar in, uh, in Hebrew simply means slaughter place. It was the place where animals were sacrificed and blood was shed, as you can see from the clip. It was wood covered with brass or copper at that time. It was a perfect square with horns on each of the four corners. It was where the blood sacrifices of clean lambs and goats would be offered in the heat of fire unto God for atonement, the covering and forgiveness of sin. That's the meaning of atonement. So the Israelites would always come with a sacrifice in the hand and a priest would assist them in doing the necessary preparation before offering their sacrifice to God. And if the offering was an animal, both the priest and the, and the person who brought the sacrifice would ensure that the animal was without blemish, a perfect sacrifice. When deemed suitable, the animal would be slaughtered his blood poured in the four corners of the altar and the carcass placed into the fire. And in ancient time, the shedding of blood was required for atonement. Without the sacrifice of an animal, there would be no forgiveness of sin for the individual family or community. Hebrews chapter 9, probably Hebrews is a book that we should carry on preaching after the book of Exodus because it just so much of the theme uh, that is focused on the uh, book of Hebrews comes out from Exodus. In chapter 9, verse 22, 22, the author of Hebrews says, The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And of course, in our New Covenant now, in the New Testament, in the time that we live in now, it is still true. We can only approach God through the blood of His Son. We cannot approach Him any other way. It was Jesus, the Son of God, who on the cross sacrificed His sinless blood on behalf of the sinner. He shed the blood. The Bible says Christ died for our sins. And, and the disciples say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It was Jesus who was resurrected as the high priest when people received the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. They are taking their place as a sinner under judgment and trusting Christ alone as their Savior before God. And some studies say that they splash the blood on the four horns of the altar uh, represent that the gospel of Christ is non-discriminatory. Uh, because for God so loved the world, the north, south, east, and west, uh, what He gave His only Son, that whoever believes should not perish, but have everlasting life. So while, while uh, the gospel is, it is inclusive, it is exclusive in the sense that it is through Jesus alone, but it's inclusive in the sense that it is for all. There's no discrimination at all, it is for all. And so, true worship, from the altar of sacrifice, true worship then stands upon the finished work of Christ. True worship stands upon the finished work 
of Christ. We can worship God because of the finished work of Christ. Hebrews again pointed us in chapter 7, verse 27, say, unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. No need. Jesus is superior than all these high priests. Hebrews, the author was trying to prove. He said he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. That's it. No need to keep on offering sacrifices for sin. Jesus, our perfect Lamb of God, once and for all, Hebrews says, when he offered himself for our sins. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, uh, the author says, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offer himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. So true worship stands upon the finished work of Christ. So it's true that there are times when we feel unworthy to serve God and feel, you know, lousy or whatever, but let me tell you, this, is, this mindset is, is, is a lie from the enemy. The blood of Christ has atoned for every sin, past, present, future, enabling us to enter freely into the presence of God. So true worship stands on the finished work of Christ. There's nothing more you can do. Nothing more you can do. All that has been done has been done. God has made a perfect way for us to come to Jesus, come to God through the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ. So the courtyard signifying true worship is understanding who we worship. The altar of sacrifice tells us that true worship stands upon the finished work of Christ. The third piece of furniture, which is the second piece of furniture in the courtyard, is the bronze basin, the laver. It is the basin for the priests called the laver or lavatory, you know, where it's a place of washing. The priests had to daily wash, daily wash their hands and feet from dirt and contamination before they worship God at the altar or enter the sanctuary to serve. So, so priests and Levites, they have to purify themselves, wash, make sure they are clean before they enter into the tabernacle, into the holy place to do their worship. So the labor, bear in mind, the labor was not for the shedding of sacrificial blood for sin, but for the washing of dirt. One had to be clean to serve for the priests and the Levites. So this tells us that God is not only interested in the forgiveness of our sins, but also our daily cleanliness in living for Him. Yes, there's forgiveness of sins, but God wants us to go on and live the kind of life that honors Him. Now, imagine if the order of the labor was first before the, the order of sacrifice. It is not. Then it will be a different story, isn't it? And Christ gospel, but Christ's gospel says, otherwise, if it is the order of sacrifice first, I mean, uh, labor first, then sacrifice, then it will convey that your life needs to be clean first before uh, you can, and then God will forgive and make one right. And that's the gospel of many other religions. But God's order reveals that first God forgives us, cleanses us, redeem us as a people first, then He gives us the law. 
redeem us. And then now, the Holy Spirit lives in us to help us to live a clean life unto Him. So true worship then, on the third point, is living our lives in pursuit of holiness. You know, the, holy, the word holiness has, has, is not a very popular word nowadays. You know, even when you, you, you give someone a, you're rather holy, it's, it's not a complimentary nowadays. It's almost like a, like a dig at you saying that you're so, so uh, holy in the sense, you know. Uh, holiness uh, is not an option. It's a lifestyle of every Christian. Happiness is not our real pursuit. It should be holiness. Without holiness, there will not be holiness, I mean, happiness. Holiness must be our center focus, and then happiness will actually come from that. If you pursue holiness first, um, happiness first, you'll be in trouble. You will never get it because you'll be pursuing in very various form that will probably put you in more bondages as such. So holiness is not an option. It's a lifestyle of every Christian. Holiness stands at the center of God's call on our lives as Christians. We are called to be holy because God is holy. In 1 Peter 1 verse 16 says that. A very famous book written many, many years ago in the 80s probably by an author called Jerry Bridges. Actually, he came to uh, uh, Melbourne. He spoke at MST uh, maybe six, seven years ago. He was, by then was very old. And, and uh, he wrote a book called Pursuit of Holiness. Uh, if you are in the generation, uh, that book was very groundbreaking in some sense. And in, in, in part, he says this. He said, if there is not at least a yearning in our hearts to live a holy life pleasing to God, we need to seriously question whether our faith in Christ is genuine. If there is not at least a yearning in our hearts to live a holy life pleasing to God, we need to seriously question whether our faith in Christ is genuine. Of course, we know the pursuit of holiness if you live on this life. Long enough, you know, the pursuit of holiness is far from easy. We pick up dirt as we go about our daily lives. That's why we need to shower every day. I know some don't, but most of us do. We pick up dirt as we go about our daily lives, filling our minds with other things and inevitably fall into sin. And that is why in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, the famous verse about the assurance of forgiveness, as a young Christian, I learned that, I memorized that verse, the assurance of forgiveness. We must continually come back to a place of repentance. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Please understand that this is in the context of relationship. So when you confess our sin, it is restored to us relationally with God. It has nothing to do with salvation. It's not that you sin, you commit a sin and then finish, you go to hell. This is not Christian understanding. So in this context of this relationally, when you come to God and ask for forgiveness, God forgives you. It restores you relationally with We've got just a husband and wife quarrel, and then you say sorry. That's it. Relationally, you're patched up. It won't affect your marriage in the sense you won't divorce us because of that. Some do, but that's a fallen, it's not a best analogy in the sense. Uh, but in the context, confession here is to make right relationally, uh, not in any sense based on salvation. 
So Christian holiness does not mean being sinless, but rather it means struggling not to give in and always getting up after every fall. It's not being sinless, but rather it means struggling not to give in and always getting up after every fall. Obedience. True worship is living our lives in pursuit of holiness because when we pursue holiness, true uh, joy will come from us because sin always uh, keeps us in bondages. Sins uh, drive us to addiction, but obedience will liberate us from bondages. Obedience will liberate us from addictions. Spiritual confusions will declutter and become clear when we choose to walk in obedience. So many people have spiritual confusion because they are not living in obedience. When we obey God, the fog will be lifted. Clear. Leonard Ravenhill, a revivalist, said, the greatest miracle God can do is to take an unholy person out of an unholy world, make them holy, and put them back into the unholy world and keep them holy. So the courtyard, through worship, is understanding who we worship. The altar of sacrifice uh, stands upon the finished work of Christ. And the laborer is, through worship, is living our lives in pursuit of holiness. The fourth piece of uh, furniture is in the holy place. And that is the menorah, the golden uh, lamp. So as you enter the left side of the holy place, stood the pure golden lamp stand. A lot of study has gone into that as well. And the gold was formed into the shape of an almond tree in the full bloom of life by beating or hammering. It has six full branches with a central shaft or trunk. And they were designed to hold seven bowls filled with olive oil to provide light. And the light would never go off. So one of the tasks of the field is constantly filling in the olive oil and to ensure that the light is constantly being lighted up. Constantly. They are saying about this almond tree linking back to the Garden of Eden of the, the tree of life, uh, and the shape of a tree of life. Uh, light and life merged together in one unit. The light was continual and was never to go out. There was no light at all in the holy place except that which came from the golden lampstand. The varied colors and beauty of the inner century could only be seen in this one light. And John chapter 1 presents Jesus as both light and life. Did you realize that? He said, In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. He alone, as God in the flesh, gives life eternal and the light to understand and know God. And some even link the furniture to the seven great I am's in the John Gospel. I am the light, I am the bread, uh, I am the door, I am the resurrection and the life linked to the labor, and I am a good shepherd linked to the altar. There are many studies on, on that as well. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is also pictured as a lampstand in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, which the Spirit and Word reveals the Gospel truth and glory of God. So no matter what period we live in, whether it's Moses' day or today, our world will be filled by the darkness of humanity's sin. And sin's sole purpose is to destroy individual families and communities and nations. And the only way to overcome this darkness is to shine God's light and point people to God. 
So true worship means being the light. We are supposed to be light of this world, as Jesus says in Matthew. You are salt of the earth. Salt is to prevent meat from rotting quickly before the days of refrigeration. And so our moral standard is to prevent, to, to uphold moral fiber. We are the light. True worship means being the light. It requires us to live as sons and daughters of the Most High and wage our authority to push back the darkness of our worlds, no matter how dark we live in. Increasingly, in the 21st century, it seems to resemble Romans chapter 1. That is more than 2,000 years ago. The world that we live in now resembles Romans chapter 1 that, that uh, Paul talks about. And when, when, when Christianity influenced that time, all these things begin to decline. And now it is coming back again. It's telling us that Christians are not exerting the influence. And therefore, this kind of forces is coming back. Uh, one of my uh, colleagues in my old church, uh, pastor's wife, wrote a, a poem that I read before. I thought it was very appropriate. He said, a world gone mad. He said, bad is good. She said this. She said, bad is good. Now, is it describing the world that we live in now? Bad is good and good is bad. Isn't it a world gone mad? Quill is gay and straight is sad. Crooked is good, is the fat. He has two moms and she has two dads. In this confusion, we are to be glad. It's all about choices and freedom, me, I, myself, and all that. So I'm a mom, but prefer to be a dad. I think, therefore, I am. I can bear a child, but prefer to be a man. If a drunk can blame a pub, why can't I blame my makeup? I'm creative, I'm artistic, I'm hot. Now I think I'd like to be God. Cut holes in the Bible, away with religious snobs. Accept my perversion, you googly snobs. Tolerance is insufficient in humanity. I want to convert you to my liberty. Do what you like, right or wrong. Go, skip, hop, step, sing a song. When I am a gay priest, muddy grass will be strong. These are the last days, they say, so I won't go away. You really have to pray, to pray and to pray. We are to be the light of this world. Uh, we just completed a study of Nehemiah with the KYB group. One of the favorite verses in the book of Nehemiah that I like the most is Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 14. Nehemiah stood up and said, don't be afraid of them as he encouraged them to build a wall. Don't be encouraged of all these enemies. Remember the Lord, he says, who is great and awesome. And you fight for your families, you fight for your sons, you fight for your daughters, you fight for your wives, and you fight for your homes. He said, remember the Lord. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And you fight for your families, you fight for your sons and your daughter, your wives and your homes. And G.K. Chesterton said, we fight not because we hate those who are in front of us. We fight because we love those who are behind us. We fight not because we hate you in front of us. We fight because we love our children. We love our future generation. That is why we fight. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, uh, Paul said, Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. And do everything in love. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Be, do everything in love. So be the light. True worship is, means being the light. Number five, the golden table show bread. I've got to speed up. The golden table show bread. Also known as the table of His presence. The bread on this table reflects the presence of God in the tabernacle as well as the provisions of sustenance for the priests. 
And so the priests will uh, eat it on Sabbath day. They leave it there for six days. On the Sabbath day, they will break it and eat it. So God and men share the same table together in fellowship of the same bread. A table is a place where friends fellowship while eating together. We read of the Lord's table in the New Testament where the where a Christian breaks the bread and eats it in the fellowship of the body of Christ. Here, God and man are in harmony over the same thing, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His death was pleasing to the Father as an acceptable offering for our sins, and His death is precious to us as a means by which we are forgiven and know God's love. And Jesus, in chapter 6 of John, said, I am the bread of life. He who eats of me will never be hungry again. Our life is not just only the physical component that we spend most of our 80% of our time feeding that. There's emotional component. There is spiritual component in there. And there's mental component as well. And Jesus is saying, well, I can satisfy the most innermost of your deepest longing. There's so many people are not pursuing that and settle for junk food when you have fantastic amount of nutritious food, you prefer to eat chips. True worship is seeking God as the sustenance of our lives. True worship is seeking God as the sustenance of our lives. We are to allow our spirit man to be satisfied by the Lord and turning away from the temporal things of the world. It's time to get hungry for God. Choose to eat nutritious food. Choose to set aside time for God to dwell in His presence, engage in prayer and meditate in His Word. Feed on the bread of life and allow the Holy Spirit to fill each day of your life. Feed on the Word. Let God's Word be your sustenance. The real food that can satisfy you, that can infuse into your entire life and outlook that will satisfy you as you live this earthly life. Number six, the golden altar of incense, the final piece of furniture in the holy place before they enter into the holy of holies. The altar, the golden altar of incense, this stood by the veil, just outside the veil. We separated the holy place from the holy of holies. The altar was for one purpose only, to burn incense and not sacrifice, okay? The altar of sacrifice is outside. This is to burn incense, not sacrifice. The incense was a special God-prescribed formula. We sent out a rich, fragrant smoke when the priest lit it at morning and evening. Incense pictures prayers to God. In Psalm 141 verse 2, it says, May my prayer be set before you, like incense. The prayer in Revelation talks about that too in chapter 5, verse 8, and chapter 8, verse 3. Talk about prayer, incense pictures, prayers to God. When one prays in the name of God's high priest, Jesus, in Jesus' name, that's why we always close prayer with in Jesus' name, there is power and it is pleasing aroma to God. So true worship is interceding and standing in the gap, like incense, sweet aroma we present to God. 
intercession, prayer. True worship is interceding and standing in the gap. It is carrying God's heartbeat for the lost, lifting up our prayers and releasing great power from heaven. Prayer. Why few want to pray? Why there's no greater attendance in our prayer meeting? Is it because you feel like it's passive, you shut your eyes, you know? Passive is the most active activity. You wage war in the heavenly realms, as God's Word says. Intercession is the truly universal work for the Christian. No place is close to intercessory prayer. No continent, no nation, no city, no organization, no office, no power on earth can keep intercession out. Do you know that? They can lock you up in prison, but what can, lo- how, what can lock you from praying? Nothing. Nothing can lock us. So intercession is truly a universal work for the Christians. We can pray. You can pray while you're doing your dishes. You can pray while you go for a walk. Direct your scattered thoughts to God. Direct your scattered thought, focus, and direct those thoughts. Allowing, instead of allowing our minds to wander, consciously direct your thoughts to intercession and pray for whatever the Holy Spirit put into your heart to pray. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, a Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of his member for one another. Or it collapses. Oswald Chambers, my favorite devotional author, said, Jesus Christ carries on intercession for us in heaven. The Holy Spirit carries on intercessions in us on earth. And we, the saints, have to carry on intercessions for all men. So instead of allowing our minds to wander, direct our thoughts to intercession and pray even for the minute thing. Pray for your children, pray for your parents, pray for the church, pray for the society, pray for the world, pray for your school. There are many things, whatever the Lord prays on your heart to pray, you pray, bring it to the Lord. Number seven, final point, all right? Hang in there, one final point. The golden ark of the covenant, and I'm done. Finally, the holy of holies, only the high priest allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. <clears throat> a room separated by thick veils, representing the separation between God and humanity. And in the most holy place, we find the Ark of the Covenant. And of course, the Ark was a chest made out of wood covered with gold and sporting a crown border like the table and incense altar. It, however, rested in the holiest place where the presence of God dwells. And the chest, the lid, contained the two tablets. When you open it up inside, it contained the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, which signifying God's standard of righteousness, a golden pot of manna, God's provision to sustain His people in life, and Aaron's rod that budded with life. It's God's choice as high priest to be our continual mediator and intercessor. It's the old covenant. The new covenant will be different. It says, when the Israelites crossed the Jordan River, remember, if you, you read the book of Exodus, remember, they have to carry, because they are moving, they have to carry the ark of God with them, the present, and then move to another place and then set up the tabernacle again. When the Israelites crossed the Jordan River with the ark, the waters miraculously stopped, and they were able to cross over on dry ground. 
So it, it, is, it is symbol of God's presence with the people. The mercy seat was the cover of the ark. It was solid gold beaten into winged cherubim. There's two cherubim on top of that. One at each and looking down where God's presence was. That's where the presence of God dwelt. Cherubim are involved with the protection of God's holiness. And, and as you said, it, was, it guard the gate as well in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? So here, once a year, the high priest alone went in with sacrificial blood from, from the altar to sprinkle it on the mercy seat to obtain forgiveness of sins for Israel. Some people say that even the priests have to put bell on their uh, foot so that as they move around, it's still ringing, means he's still alive. If God is not pleased with the sacrifice, then he will be struck dead, and then this other priest will have to wail him out. I mean, God is... Uh, probably happened in the temple rather than in the, the tabernacle. The mercy seat tells us that there is mercy with God. In Hebrews, again, chapter 9, verse 12, it says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood in the new covenant. Jesus entered in once into holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us by dying for us. And so the Ark of the Covenant was assurance that God was dwelling among His people. God always intended to be visible and dwell among His people. And even after the fall, God made a way for His people to meet with Him through the tabernacle. And then later on in the promised land, it was a temple. Solomon built a temple. And then up to the new covenant, it will be us being the temple and the Holy Spirit dwells in us. So the moment Jesus died on the cross, remember the story of Easter and, and Good Friday, we often preach, when the moment Jesus died on the cross, God immediately ripped open the temple curtains. And man was able to stand before a holy God. It was a picture of heaven rushing to embrace humanity. God wants to dwell with us, with us. And the curtain split and now we can have that access to God because of Jesus' death. The best quote is by Timothy Keller. He said, The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. in the morning for a glass of water is a child. And you and I have that access. The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And you and I, we have that excess because of Jesus now died on a cross. Forgive our sin. The curtain open. We can enter into the presence of God. So true worship is responding passionately to a passionate God. I want to just finish with one final verse. Oh no. One final verse. Or two. Or no. The first one is John chapter 1, where we talk about Christmas. This is Christmas. This message is actually Christmas in the Old Testament. God coming to dwell among the people. And, and of course, Christmas, we celebrate God coming to us in the person of Jesus Christ. A step further, the personalization of God comes even closer with each step of the way and then the dawning of the Holy Spirit and come revelation where God will dwell with us again. Uh, John chapter 1, we often say about Jesus coming to dwell among us. 
the word dwell is the word tabernacle. It's the word tabernacle. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So it means the word became flesh and made his tabernacle among us. Last verse that I want to say and then I'm done is Hebrews chapter 13 verse 15. Now as we come to God in church or whatever we, wherever we are, it says this, through Jesus, remember the word through Jesus, therefore let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess His name. The verse contains another practical result of this teaching. Believers ought to offer a sacrifice, but one of praise, not animals or materials. Since Jesus' work on our behalf is completely finished, there is nothing we can add to it. Instead, our praise and our sacrifice ought to be done out of gratitude, obedience, and worship. And so those are true worship, is living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is our spiritual worship, offering this sacrifice of praise for all that He has done for us. May you know Jesus, may you come to Jesus, may you know that He forgives your sin, and through Jesus, you can come to God, and through Jesus, you will have abundant life. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for your word on the beautiful story of the tabernacle. And there's so much more we could talk about. We haven't even touched on the priests, how this priest resembles what Christ done for us on the cross. There's so much of your word that provides us wonderful, nutritious, solid meat that we chew on, that finds satisfaction here on earth. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for us, sacrificing for us, and through Jesus, through you dying on the cross for us, our sins are forgiven. We have the assurance of heaven, eternal life. We have the assurance of our forgiveness of sin. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. We bless you. We want to worship you. We want to offer our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you, because that is true spiritual worship honoring you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. May the amazing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, His unconditional and unfailing love of God, and the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore.